welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Ben Merkel on October 9th, Lord's Day Service. Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are your people, the living stones that are being stacked to build a holy house, a temple to praise your name. May we stay true to the foundation of the apostles and prophets. May the glory never depart this house of praise. Bless us now as we come to your word. Shape us and build us up accordingly. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and amen. Amen. Well, good morning and uh, greetings from uh, Moscow, Idaho. It's really a pleasure to be with you and to worship with you this morning. Uh, In Moscow, we've heard a lot about uh, both the planting and the incredible growth of this congregation. Uh, We're encouraged by it and pray for God's blessing on it. Um, In this this passage that we're looking at this morning, Peter uses the image of a cornerstone to explain to us the role that Christ is supposed to have in our lives, that of a, a cornerstone. Hopefully this is not a new image to you, this idea that there's this house that's being built. Uh, There's a building, or as he describes it here in verse 5, a spiritual house. So you as a congregation are a spiritual house that are being built up. And each of you is a rock being built into the wall of this house that is being built up. But uh, the, the walls are built on a foundation. The foundation is oriented off of a cornerstone. Um, All of the foundation is oriented off of the cornerstone. It's laid first, and then the foundation is laid oriented to that cornerstone, so that that cornerstone is the first piece that is laid, and the whole building is ordered off of it. It shapes the entire building. Um, I I wonder, you might ask yourself, in what way is Jesus a cornerstone? How does Jesus act as a cornerstone for this congregation? Um, I've said that, okay, so the the rock is the cornerstone that is laid, and then the whole building is oriented off of that cornerstone. So how does he perform that function for you? Well, first of all, think of it this way. The Son, Jesus is the Son of God. The Son comes to reveal the Father to us. Um, that's kind of just what sons do in general, right? When you, when you run into someone's son, you see a, a little picture of their father. You run into somebody that you haven't seen for a long time and you see their son and, you're, and you're, you, you 
Sometimes the kid looks more familiar to you than the man that you used to know because he looks just like his father, reminds you of his father and his youth. The son reveals the father. It's why um, children are, um, are listed in elder qualifications, right? What, what children are like say something about how this man is at home. The, the son reveals the father. He shows you what the father is like. He, he has his father's features and he has his father's mannerisms and everything. He shows you the father. That's just what Jesus did. If you look at John 14... Verse 7, if you had, this is Jesus speaking, speaking to the, to the Pharisees. If you had known me, uh, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Not as Pharisees, the Pharisees speaking to his disciples. But he says, when you see me, you see the father. When you know me, you know the father. Skip down to verse 9. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father. So how can you say, show us the father? Disciples say, show us what the Father is like. And he says, that's what I'm doing. You get to know me, and you're getting to know the Father. I reveal the Father. The Son reveals the Father. Just as sons are pictures of their fathers, the Son came to actually reveal the Father to us. This, the fact that the Son reveals the Father, then, is also why he's called the Word. Um, John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Jesus comes and we call him the Son, but we also call him the Word. Why do we call Jesus the Word? Well, think of it this way. If I have an idea in my head, okay, I'm thinking of something right now, uh, but it's in my head, okay? Um, how can I get what is in my head to you? How can I reveal it to you? Well, as soon as I, I, as soon as I take that idea and I put it into a word and I speak the word, then the idea that is in my head is now communicated to you. Let's say I'm thinking of something right now, but you don't know what that thing is until I say the word, turtle. Okay, you know, there I said it. I've said turtle. Now all of a sudden, this thing that was, was bound up inside of my head is now in yours. Why is it in your head now? Because I spoke the word. I said the word turtle. And when I said it, it revealed to you what was in my head. The Son is the word of the Father because when the Son comes and you meet the Son and you, and you get to know the Son, the Son reveals to you what the Father is. He is the word of the Father. It lets you know the mind of the Father. The Son is the word of the Father. The Father speaks His word, the Son, and the Son comes to us and reveals to us what the Father is like. He revealed, uh, Jesus came and He revealed the character and the nature of the Father to us. He revealed the mind of the Father to us. And in this sense then, if you think about that, then He's acting as a cornerstone. So the Son comes, reveals the Father, He says, this is what God is like. In that sense, He is laying a cornerstone and He's saying, everybody build on this. This is what God is like. You need to orient your life. You need to orient the foundation. You need to orient every wall that is built off of this understanding of who the Father is and what God is like. So uh, he acts as a cornerstone. He's the revelation of the mind of the Father, the plan of the Father. Some people want to build on that stone, in line with that stone, and true to that stone. And others are offended by that plan. Some people hear the mind of God and they're offended by it. And as Peter describes it here, these are the people that hit the stone and they trip, they fall. They stumble because he is a stumbling stone for them. But for us, for this congregation, he must be the cornerstone. So the next question is, where do you encounter the word? Where do, where do you encounter this word? Where do we meet this revelation of the Father? 
Where is Jesus revealed to us? Well, the answer is in the Word, this Word, the Bible, right? The Son came as a cornerstone, revealing who the Father is. The disciples who lived with him for three years, with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, committed into writing the teaching of Jesus. That's um, John 20. It's how John is ending his gospel. Listen to how he's, he's wrapping things up. John 20, verse, start verse 30. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John says, I wrote this to preserve what I received from Jesus so that you could read this and, and you would have the word revealed to you. Right? You would have the word revealed to you. You would have the Father revealed to you. The cornerstone, Jesus Christ, then directed the laying of the foundation, the apostles and the prophets. That's this. That's scripture that is the, the foundation oriented off of the cornerstone. And now we, his church, are charged to build on that foundation. We're supposed to give ourselves to this word and order our lives by it. I think this is why when we come to Peter's words here in, in 1 Peter, when he talks about Jesus as a cornerstone, he does so in the context of describing the significance of the Bible. He's actually, when he's talking about this in, in 1 Peter 2, he's actually in the context of speaking about Scripture and the Bible. Let me, let me just back up for a little bit. Um, I'll, I'm going to go back to chapter 1, starting at verse 22. I'm going to read the verses that led up to where I began. And as I'm reading them, just listen for him to describe the Word, Scripture, the Bible. Um, and, and, and you'll suddenly see that that's the context of him describing the laying of the foundation. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, though the, through the word of God which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. This is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. Sorry, I'm ending a cold here. So, um, so listen again. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, uh, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. All flesh is as grass, the glory of man. And then he says, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word by which the gospel is preached to you. When he's describing the laying of the foundation that we're to build on, he's talking about the laying of scripture that we're called uh, to, to live our lives by. Scripture is the revelation of the sun and acts as our, sta our standard, our straight edge, the revelation of the character of God to us. Scripture was des um, describes to us where the cornerstone is set and what is the foundation on which we will build. We, therefore, in order to be a faithful people, must cultivate a life of what I would describe as radical biblicism. And that's what I want to be exhorting you towards, is radical biblicism. It's, um, as my, my father-in-law would say, it's the, it's the hermeneutic of, here's the verse, what's your problem? Ra radical biblicism, giving our lives to the ordering of Scripture. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 3. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Okay, he says there's, there's this foundation that is laid, all right, and that is the, the word of God. 
in that foundation, we have to take heed, examine our lives, and see in, in to what um, degree our life is being built on that foundation, and where are we starting to build off of the foundation, because those are the things uh, that will be burned. Those are the things that will be revealed. So we have to learn a radical submission to the script, standard of Scripture. We don't cherry-pick our way through Scripture. That's why, as a faithful Christian, you should be committed to daily Bible reading, working your way all the way through the Bible. Okay? We believe that the, the God of the Old T Testament is as much our God as the God of the New Testament. It's all, it, all of it is the revelation of who our God is. And so we read the whole thing. We read it all the way straight through. There's a tendency, I think, in a lot of evangelical circles to just kind of cherry pick where we have certain verses, certain maybe books that we like to read, certain chapters. When we say, okay, yeah, I read my Bible, what that means is I have certain psalms that I think give me kind of the warm fuzzies. So I go and I read that um, once or twice a week. But we don't work our way all the way through Scripture, getting the whole counsel of God and understanding how He has revealed Himself to us. We need to commit to being people who are, are submissive to the entirety of Scripture, not just our um, favorite verses. We believe, um, and, and if the, the verses that offend us are just as much binding on us as the verses that give us the warm and fuzzy feels. Right? The, the, the ones that offend us, we have to spend time understanding it because there may be something in our life that is not on the foundation. And we need to take the time to um, study scripture to understand how to actually apply it to our lives. And I would also say we don't get to cherry pick our way through our lives. Okay? So we can't cherry pick our way through scripture, but we also can't cherry pick our way through our own lives. Um, we don't get to have a, a Sunday self and then a Monday through Saturday self, right? Uh, one version of you that shows up at church on Sunday, but a completely different version of you that works Monday through Saturday. Uh, the, 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 the self that the people at church get to see versus the self that your kids at home get to see. We don't, we don't get to cherry pick our lives. We need to be the same person all the way through with scripture applying to all of it. I think there's a lot of times, um, particularly men will find in specific jobs, they will feel like, listen, I, I'm, I'm a Christian everywhere else, but it's impractical for me to live by that kind of word in my work, the things I have to do, the kind of person that I need to be in order to get things done, require that I be this kind of person at work. Oh, we, we can't do that. We can't have different versions of ourselves. You can't have, there's, um, there's Sunday you, and then there's um, you stuck in traffic, right? Um, I don't know the population of Huntsville, but I know that in, in Moscow, this is the funny thing where you see people who are like accustomed to living, say, in Seattle and Seattle traffic, and then they move to Moscow and they're accustomed to freaking out, laying on the horn, screaming, obscene gestures and whatnot, and they think this is just how you get through traffic. And it's like, you're doing that, and it's like, there's an elder, there's your pastor, there's your next door neighbor, and, and it's, you know, you're in front of all these people that you know, and you have to lose that, because you can't behave like that in a, in a small town. But being in a big town is no excuse for it, right? You know, it's, it's just as much a problem to be, behave like that um, in, in a big town, it's just that nobody's holding you accountable. You can't have a version of you that is, this is what I'm like when I'm in Huntsville, but then when I'm on a business trip, there's, there's a different kind of uh, set of standards that I hold myself to. Two different versions of you. So we don't get to cherry pick our way through scripture, but we also don't get to cherry pick our way through lives, saying sometimes this verse is on and sometimes it's off. Sometimes it doesn't apply. It should be all 
of the Bible for all of your life, for, for everything that you're doing. All of the Bible for all of your life. Now, when you start to give yourself to this kind of radical biblicism that I'm describing, this, this deep biblicism, you'll find yourself in conflict quite often because you're going to start to bring in a standard that people are uncomfortable with. And there are a lot of ways that people will maneuver around the application of Scripture to their lives. Um, one, one that I think is extremely, extremely common right now is this kind of, um, there's a sloppy equivocation that we've grown very accustomed to, and I think frequently don't see that it's happening. This is where um, it's a sloppy equivocation, where what you do is you take a, a biblical theme, um, but you, you sort of express it vaguely. You, say, you take something that those are words, or that's a theme that is found in Scripture, but you pull it out of Scripture and you express it vaguely. And then, instead of using Scripture to unpack it and explain it, what you do is you just fill out your understanding of that theme with um, the twisted desires of your heart. Okay? You, just, you just decide for yourself how you're going to unpack that theme. The example I always use to describe this is um, God is love. 1 John 4.8, God is love. That is a biblical theme, straight there out of your New Testament. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. Okay, so that's a biblical theme. Now, what you do is pull it out of Scripture and don't use Scripture to unpack it. Just take, just take that, that statement, God is love, and go into your own heart to unpack what that means. Instead of going to Scripture to find out God's definition of love and His standard of love, go into your own heart, and what it becomes is, well, what do I feel like? Like, what, what are the things that I like? What, are, what am I drawn to? What are, what are my passions and desires? And I can have a, a deeply twisted and dark heart and fill it out with all of those desires. And now, because God is love, God's blessing is on all of those things. And Christians can't say anything about it because God is love. Your Bible says that, right? So you can't, you can't argue with me uh, about this. Um, you fill out the definition with the desires of your own heart. What does love feel like to you? Love, instead of being a description of the character of God, becomes whatever desire you feel intensely. And I would say in our current culture, that primarily means your sexual desires. Whatever sexual deviancy that comes out of your heart, um, now God is love. That means this is a good thing. So if a man feels a deep and powerful commitment to his homosexual partner, which he identifies as love, and we know that God is love, that means that his homosexual desire is divine. This is, God, this is a divine thing that he has. If you look at any um, Christian attempt to uh, explain why homosexuality is okay, you'll find them making exactly this argument. They, al they always um, follow in this path. We know that God is love. This person is experiencing love in this way. Therefore, God's blessing is on it. And this goes on. You could do this with a number of different things. Um, God is just. God is just. He's the God of justice. What feels fair to you? I mean, how, how often do you find something where you say, ah, that's unfair? Well, if you feel like it's unfair, then that means God, who is justice, is on your side and also thinks this is unfair. And you, can, you can do this again and again. Um, uh, justice. Uh, you can do this with peace. You can do this with um, all kinds of different things. Where basically, you take whatever... whatever um, Thing you want God's blessing on, regardless of whether or not it's in his word, you can come up with his blessing on it when you, when you follow this little path that I am describing. Uh, this goes on and on. Uh, the social justice movement, I think, then is often argued this is something that Christians should get behind by doing this kind of argument. 
So just to review the move, you take a biblical virtue or theme like love, justice, peace, and instead of doing the work of studying scripture and allowing scripture to flesh this out, you go into your own heart and you say, you ask your heart, how do I feel about this? Just don't worry about this. Just ask myself, how do I feel about this? And then I pretend like this is what um, God has commanded. But Christ is our cornerstone. His revealed word is our standard. Our conception of love and every other theme, justice, peace, whatever it is, must be defined by the clear revelation of Scripture, not by the twisted desires of our fallen heart. I go to Scripture to unpack what is love. And even if I feel like something, like this feels like love, if I see Scripture um, contradict that, I need, to, I need to lay down my definition and submit my mind, my emotions, my affections to the standard of Scripture. Now, let me, let me run down one little philosophical rabbit trail for a moment, okay? Because um, it sounds like I am saying your natural conceptions are entirely broken, like, you, you cannot be trusted to flesh out the meanings of words. You can only go to Scripture to have Scripture flesh out the meanings. If you go to your own heart, your own mind, it will always be broken. So you have to have Scripture to flesh that out. But if that's the case, if our, if our natural conceptions are broken and we can only trust in Scripture, then honestly, how can you know anything, really? Because doesn't Scripture speak to you in terms of your own natural conceptions? You know, for instance... Um, Love your neighbor as yourself, okay? Scripture right there is telling you to look in your heart, see what love feels like to you, all right, as you love yourself, and then he says, now take that standard and apply it to the other person. So doesn't it, does, if, I can't, if I cannot trust in my own understanding of love, how could, I, how could I understand what love is? And you'll find that, that everything in Scripture, it's going to define itself in terms of other things. And so then you have to go to Scripture to find those other things defined. And then you have to go, and, and you, if you could never go into your own understanding, your own heart, and your own mind for some sort of understanding, then you're going to be locked in this, in this maze and never get to actual understanding. How could I, um, the golden rule tells me to love my neighbor as myself. Do I need to find another verse that tells me how to love myself? And if I find that verse, so I need to find other verses to keep explaining all the terms in that verse. And then I will need more verses to explain those verses, and on it will go. I'll just be lost in a maze. How can I know anything if I can't trust my own understanding? It's not that our own understanding is useless. It's just simply broken. It's not useless. It's just broken. Um, let, let me illustrate this. I remember, I think this was around seventh grade or so, um, I had a, I turned in a paper and I misspelled a word and the teacher uh, uh, underlined it, told me I needed to go look it up in the dictionary to spell it right. And this is, I'm obviously um, referring to a time uh, completely different than what our ch current children are being raised in because there was a time when you had to go look it up in the dictionary, right? You couldn't just trust spell check to, to fix it for you. But so I'm told, go look up this word in the dictionary. And it, and it seemed to me that I had caught my teacher in a logical impossibility. How can I look up a word in the dictionary if I don't know how to spell it? Right? You, you tell me to go look it up in the dictionary to figure out how it's spelled. But it's, it's how can I look it up in the dictionary if I don't know how to spell it? And it just seemed like I just had him pinned. And, and I was like, you know, this is silly. I will be off at recess now. Um, and he, he smiled and just said, basically, he didn't give me any explanation or answer. He just gave me 10 more words that I needed to look up before I could go to recess. And it turns out 
you can find a word in the dictionary when you don't know how to spell it. And, and he, did, he didn't give me an explanation, he just gave me practice. That's all it was. Ten more words to learn this on. Because the truth is, when I say I don't know how to spell it, that's not totally true, right? I do know, I, I have an initial conception. If I can hear the word, I can sound it out. I have a pretty rough guess, and I probably just have four or five little, little things, possibilities that I need to eliminate, which I can quickly figure out by thumbing through the dictionary. So it wasn't that I had no conception of how to spell it. I just didn't know how to spell it exactly right. And I think that that's similar, that's similar to our understanding of, uh, of God's law. We have his law written on our heart. We, we have his law written on our heart. We know in our heart what is right and what is wrong, but we're confused. We, have, we are twisted. Calvin, um, in, in his um, Institutes of Christian Religion, he says that scripture is kind of like, um, you're, a, you're a man with very blurry eyesight. You can see, but it's blurry. Scripture, when you read scripture, what happens is scripture is a set of spectacles that you put on and it just brings everything to focus. Suddenly you can see correctly. So it's not, as, it's not as if when I'm reading scripture that everything here has to be explained to me. Much of it uh, resonates as true very quickly. But scripture gives me clarity. It gives me uh, precision in my understanding of uh, what is love, what is justice, etc., we currently live in a world then that is attempting to redefine God's character. Because we deny the existence of the Creator, we deny His correction to our blurry eyesight. And we're growing more and more cross-eyed every day. Love, justice, man, woman, marriage, beauty. We have denied the cornerstone, and now the stonemasons have no idea where to build. They kind of just wandered off of the construction site. They're dropping stones in the backyard uh, as, they, as they walk along because we're completely disoriented now. Now, whenever we see something like this in the culture around us, I think one thing that's always really important to do is to stop because um, you, can, you can have a lot of fun just delighting yourself at seeing people being silly. Um, but it's always good to stop and say, okay, to what extent do I see that error in my own heart or in my own life? How do I apply this uh, to myself? How do I look into my own heart? And, and do I see the seed of the same problem in myself? How often do you re redefine what God asks of you in Scripture simply by saying something like, but surely a loving God would not ask me to do that, right? How, how often are you reading your Bible and you see something that's telling you to do and you think, I don't, I don't think God would really want me to do that. It doesn't feel to me that a loving God would ask that of me. Um, have you ever had in a, like in a theological argument, you hear somebody say something along the lines of, um, I could never worship a God who, um, it's almost always in one of those discussions about uh, the sovereignty of God and free will and all that, and you get into that conversation and, and in, invariably somebody will say, I could never worship a God who, that's always a scary thing to say. And generally when somebody says something like that, they're about a 95% chance that they're about to commit uh, this error that I'm describing right now. It means they've come across something in scripture that offends their sensibilities. And rather than giving themselves to scripture, they just kind of close their Bible and say, no, um, I know how I feel about this. And that feeling is not going to be moved. I'm not going to allow it to be moved. Um, you, have, you have what scripture says, you have what they feel. And basically they're saying that how they feel cannot change. So how that verse is understood has to be the thing that shifts. I won't allow scripture to say that because of how I feel. But push this a little bit further into your own life, because I think this shows up all the time when you're walking through practical Christian living. 
How do you feel about your marriage? How does God command you to feel about your marriage? And how do you excuse the difference between those two things? Marriage is interesting because God, um, Scripture has a host of commands to our emotions um, in the context of marriage. Scripture commands your emotions and how you're supposed to feel about your spouse. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, honor your husbands. Your emotions frequently have strong competing opinions on these subjects, right? Your, your emotions will often feel like, that's not how I feel right now. That's, that's not how, I don't feel like loving. I don't feel like honoring, right? Your, your emotions will object and argue with this. Guess which one you're commanded to listen to, right? Scripture says one thing and your heart is saying another. Guess which one you're commanded to listen to? And we don't get to excuse one because we say that's just not how I feel. Scripture says, here, here's other examples of, of this at work. First um, Thessalonians 5, 18. In everything, give thanks. In everything, give thanks. Um, there, are, there are times when, when somebody says, you need to find gratitude for this moment. Feels extremely offensive and heartless and rude. And yet, Scripture says, in everything give thanks. There are, there are moments where we don't want to hear that, where we don't want to have to stop and, see, and, and express gratitude to God for what He has given us. But Scripture says, in everything give thanks. Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing. It's, it's, um, we live in an age where anxiety is increasingly, um, I think, elevated as this sort of special state where nobody can tell you, nobody can say anything to you when you're... Um, ridden with anxiety. You, you kind of have a right to be, um, to be overwhelmed with depression or anxiety or whatever. But scripture says, be anxious for nothing. Um, your, your emotions have to stop and listen to that command and give yourself to that command. Do you submit to these commands or do you allow yourself to slump into depression and then come up with spiritual excuses for it? Right? It's easy to come up with spiritual excuses for depression. If you're unsure what I'm talking about, let me, let me help you. I'm going to coach you on how to, how to commit this sin. Um, what you do is imagine your best life ever. Okay? Imagine your, your best life ever. The health, the wealth, the relational commitments, etc. And I'm not talking about some like um, lust-filled fantasy. I'm describing like you at your very best. So you're making tons of money. You're tithing like nobody's business. You're supporting everything. You're sort of like the benefactor of Huntsville. And, and life is good. And you're, you're living the best possible um, life that you could have. Now, having imagined up this life, just cross your eyes a little bit. Get yourself confused about whether it was you or God who wanted this for you. I just get a little bit confused about whose idea this was. Now, having gotten confused, resolve that confusion by deciding it must have been God. Um, this is the best life, which surely a loving God would have wanted for you, right? Now, having made clear in your own heart what God's will for your life is, you can be filled with righteous sorrow over it not coming to pass, right? Your, your depression, your sorrow, is just simply your righteous indignation over God's will not working out and, and, and what God would have had not coming to fruition. You can actually get yourself quite indignant on God's behalf, it feels like to you, because uh, on a future for yourself that you imagined up is not happening. 
And you can, you can do this in all you know, different relationships. You can imagine what your marriage, God should have wanted for your marriage, and then you see where it is. Or let's say your health, what, what God should have wanted for your health and what it is, or your finances, or what, whatever it is. You, you, can, you can think up whatever is perplexing you in your life. You can imagine how God would have wanted differently for you, and then your sorrow, your anxiety, your depression over this is kind of righteous because you're, you're actually pleading God's uh, case as you sorrow over this. Um, you can be angry with your friends who try to correct you. Somebody comes along and says, hey, be anxious uh, for nothing, right? In everything, give thanks. You can actually be angry with them because they're standing in the way of what God wants you to be feeling. When people confront what they see as sin in you, you can turn it around as sin in them. When your pastor or one of the elders here tells you that you need to do a hard thing in your heart, then I think you could have a, a strong argument to make that he's being spiritually abusive. Right? When, when he says, look, here's, I see this in your, in your marriage. Here's something that scripture says you need to do. And you think, I don't want to do that. And I think that that's spiritually abusive. I don't think God would ask me to do that. So I think that's spiritually abusive for you to apply scripture to my life. Your emotions, your personal preferences, your natural proclivities all stand firm. You don't change at all. They become the cornerstone that everything else has to be built on. Right? Your emotions, your proclivities, all those things, those become the cornerstone and everything has to be built off of that. And, and I think if you think about that for a moment and then look around at kind of the American church in general, I think this actually describes a lot of the modern American church. This is, this is the move that has happened. What we've done is we've stopped reading our Bibles, we've stopped looking to apply scripture to our lives, and we've started taking vague biblical themes filling them out with our own twisted desires and refusing to allow ourselves be held to the actual standard of Scripture. Um, and I think if this is the case, then why are we surprised when we look around and we see a nation with no cornerstone? If the Christian church here has no cornerstone, why are we surprised to see a nation with no cornerstone? But Peter says this, back to 1 Peter 2, Peter says this in verse 9, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter says, not you. That's the way the world is, but you are a special people. You are a chosen nation. You have been called out of that world to live in a different way. Peter is drawing here from Moses' words in Exodus 19. Verses 5 and 6, listen to this. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all the people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Okay, Moses says, the Israelites, you've been called out. You are a special nation. You are a special people. You are the children of God, called out to live differently than the rest of the world. That's Exodus 19, and you probably know that Exodus 20 is where he gives them the Ten Commandments. He's going to tell them, you're called out, and this is how you're going to live. This is how you're going to be different. You'll be a different kind of people, and they can tell by your conduct. 
Um, I, I think then you, when you get the context of the Ten Commandments with him saying you are a special people, you start to see again the, the importance and the significance of the word of God. That his, his word shapes us, describes us. It orients our, our foundation. It orients our lives. God's people are the people of his word. This is why, going back to my opening exhortation, a commitment to regular Bible reading is so important to the health of your congregation. I would encourage you to make sure as a congregation that you are cultivating this habit of being regular Bible readers. God builds this church. He will build this congregation with his word, with you being a people given to his word. And you must be a people who are regularly reading their Bible, and you must pe uh, read the word with a conviction that what it says you must do. That, that, that here's the verse, what's your problem? You want that conviction in your life. That if it says this, then I need to do this. And here's the great news also. If you go one more verse, I read to you verse 9, you were a chosen generation. But go one more verse. Who once were not a people, but now are the people of God. Who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Peter does not say that we do this in order to get mercy. He doesn't say you obey so that God will love you, so that God will forgive your sins. You obey in order to get forgiveness from him. He says we read our Bible and we obey scripture because we already have obtained mercy. You were once not a people, but are now the people. You had not obtained mercy, but you now have obtained mercy. You are the, you are the people that God has brought out of darkness and into light. And and because he has done this, you live differently. So you want to make sure you get that order right. You don't live differently in order that he would do this for you. He has done this for you, and therefore you live differently. He is the foundation, not your own obedience. Christ is the one that's at the foundation of everything. Um, we read our Bibles because we already have obtained mercy. And this disposition of radical biblicism, then, that I'm describing, is not an attempt to win God's favor. You're not trying to make God like you. It's our response to his freely given mercy for his love for us. He's given us his love. He's given us his mercy. This is how we respond to it, not how we provoke it or, or, or prompt it. Um, the sacrifice that we offer in this temple, because remember, he's, there's a cornerstone, there's a foundation, there's walls, and we're building a house, and when you zoom back and you look at the house, it's not just a house, it's actually a temple. It's a temple for people to come to worship in. That's why you are this house, the people who have gathered together to worship God. So you come into this house, you come into a temple in order to worship. But, it, but this temple, the sacrifice that is being offered in this sacrifice in, in this temple is not a sacrifice of, uh, uh, for sin. Look again at verse 9. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You don't come in and build this house in order to build a temple to atone for sin. You build this temple built on the, for, the, the cornerstone of Christ's sacrifice so that you can build this temple to come together and offer the sacrifice of praise. Your sacrifice is a sacrifice of response, of gratitude, of praise to God for what he has done. Our sacrifice is the praise and worship of a thankful people. And that's what you're doing here every Sunday morning. You stand on the foundation and you declare with grateful hearts what God has done in your lives. Thanks for listening. 
If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.